Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning to look into your word, to begin to understand our mission, understand your mission for us, to know our involvement in it and what your plan is for us as individuals uh, in your big historical cosmic plan. Uh, we have a role to play. And so, Lord, I just pray as we look into your word today, we would understand how you work and how you intend to work through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, or the, as we've mentioned, it's the beginning of Missions Week, and as I just prayed, we want to look this morning specifically, I want to look at our role in God's big plan of mission. And so God's vision for mission is his glory and our joy is sort of my title for this morning. And in the last two weeks, at Palm Sunday and in Easter, we were looking at God's big purpose, Jesus' big obedience. You remember that? When Jesus was standing there in the temple, wrestling the fear that had fallen upon his soul, having to make a decision whether he was going to pursue the mission and lay down his life and accomplish the purpose of God's glory in his death and resurrection. And we were looking and we were sort of zoomed out. You remember I talked about that. We were sort of zoomed out to this big picture, understanding this big cosmic purpose of God that was taking place at that moment in history in Easter. And we were looking at that and I don't know about you, it was good for me anyway, but it was fantastic. And, and today, and, and, and we talked about then how God was glorified in the fact that, that Jesus on the cross lifted up was drawing all people to himself. And so we're up there in these sort of big, glorious realities of God, and it's really easy to stay up there. I personally love to stay up there in sort of the heights of God's glory. It's such a great place to just meditate on and contemplate on the glory of God and what he is doing and everything that God is doing in his sovereignty and in his justice and in his love and just God ruling the universe and accomplishing what God will accomplish for his glory. And the temptation of staying up there in that big picture, in the big plan of God, if we stay up there too long is we lose sight of what is going on in the, on the ground. That God is not just working his purposes at these big sort of glorious history-spanning, universe-spanning levels, but God is working out his purpose on the ground here and now, not just 2,000 years ago, but today. And so the temptation is to say that, that God has done it, and he has done it, and his plan, his glory, Jesus did it, and Jesus is doing it. It's all done. There's, there's nothing for me to do. I mean, that's where we were, right? That Jesus has accomplished all this, and God has accomplished all this by his sovereignty. And so there's nothing for me to do. I, I can't. What am I going to do in Halliburton? How am I going to contribute to what God has done in the cross of Christ. We, were, we spent two weeks there and the glory of it and it's so big and I, what am I going to do? I don't have anything to add to what God is doing except that's not true. And that's what today is about. That's what Mission Week is about. Is It's not true that we have nothing to participate in, in in what God is doing. God's plan for the universe, God's plan for humanity includes us. And so we've spent a couple weeks zoomed up there to see the big picture of God's plan and unfolding the death and resurrection of his son. And now as we go into missions week, we're going to consider God's plan in our own itty-bitty little lives, in our very normal, mundane, day-to-day Halliburton lives. And what goes on with us is part of God's plan and how 
his people and his church are part of his plan to make his name great and how to work out his plan to draw people to himself through the witness and through the testimony of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's the part that we have to play. And so it's sort of in three parts. And uh, the three parts are how this drawing happens. How is God drawing people to himself? And what part do we play in it? And then how do people react to that drawing? What are the different ways that the world is going to react to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of a God who loves them? And then thirdly, why would we do it? What is in it for us? How has God incorporated this into our joy so that we would participate in this and that the benefits that we get out of it? So the first thing is how this drawing happens. And to look at that, we're going to look at Luke 5, 1 to 10. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke 5, 1 to 10, and you can read along with me, and uh, we'll see what Jesus is teaching about the nature of how God works and how this drawing in of people and drawing people to God is a part of human agency, that there's an involvement of us in this drawing in, and so that we're not tempted just to stay up in the clouds and stay up in the big glories of God and saying, Jesus accomplished it all, God's accomplishing it all, he's drawing everybody to himself, there's nothing for us to do. We'll look and see here in Luke 5, 1 to 10, as Jesus basically creates a teaching opportunity for himself. And he manufactures this, being Jesus. Uh, He needs a teaching, an object lesson. And so he makes an object lesson happen while he's standing here by the lake uh, of Gennesaret. Now Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing around him to hear the word of God. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them, and they were washing their nets. And so he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, And asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will lower the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets started to tear. And so they motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they were about to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. May God bless the reading of his word. So what we have here in this object lesson that... I wish I could do this when I preached. I wish I could just sort of create an object lesson like this. But, you know, Jesus has got one up on me on that. Um, But he creates this object lesson while he is preaching to the people because he wants to demonstrate something to the disciples. He's beginning right here at the beginning of his ministry to call Simon Peter and to call James and John, uh, the the sons of Zebedee, and he's starting to call his disciples and he's teaching them something. He's showing them something about how he's going to work, about how God works, about how people are going to be drawn to Jesus, about how people are going to be drawn to God and about how they're going to hear about God and hear about the gospel. And the method that Jesus has is, is you're going to act and I'm going to accomplish something. That I could uh, do it a different way, but this is how I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to teach you how to catch people, and I'm going to draw people to myself through your action. That's what's going on in this story. The picture here is that God initiates and his people obey. God is always the actor. It was while we were yet sinners that God loved us. In other words, there is no one who seeks after God. God is the initial actor. He is the one who pursues us. He is the one who acts to draw us to himself. And yet, even though it's God that initiates, he chooses through his plan to draw people to work through people. And so God chose for himself at the very beginning, you remember, a people, Abraham. And he chose Abraham on his initiative. Abraham was just minding his own business. There was nothing special about Abraham. He wasn't a... He was just a guy from Ur of the Chaldeas, and God could have picked him. He could have picked an Aztec. He could have picked a North American Indian. He could have picked an Asian guy. doesn't matter. God picked Abraham. There was nothing special or righteous about Abraham. God picked Abraham, and Abraham obeyed, and he followed God. And from his obeying, God drew a people to himself, a nation that he called Israel. And then... God had to draw Israel back to them while they were under slavery in Egypt. Egypt, which is a picture of the world. world. And so God rose up, raised up Moses. And there was nothing particularly special about Moses. But God chose Moses. And Moses had to act and obey. And God had to teach Moses a lot of lessons about obeying. And that's sort of a common thread, actually, through pretty much everybody that God uses. Is God had to teach Moses to obey. Sent him out you know, in the desert for 40 years looking after sheep you know, to teach him how to look after the nation of Israel. And uh, so Moses finally obeys, and God uses Moses to draw the people of Israel out of Egypt and ultimately to himself in the promised land. Or you have people like Jonah, okay? The city of Nineveh was a godless city. There was nobody righteous in Nineveh. There was no reason for God to care or love the people of Nineveh. There was nothing that people in Nineveh were doing that would cause them to be loved or embraced by God. But God puts his finger on Jonah and says, Jonah, you need to go and preach the gospel. You need to go and tell Nineveh about me. Tell them to repent and turn towards me. So Nineveh was taking no action. God was taking all the action. And then Jonah, he was bitter about it. He didn't want to do it. You know the story of Jonah, all the stuff that, you know, God had to correct him as well. Finally gets Jonah, uh, you know, against his will into Nineveh, telling them they're going to repent or God's going to destroy them the people of Nineveh to Jonah's regret actually do repent and he's bitter about that because he doesn't like the Ninevites but you know but God calls that whole city to know his name God's action God is acting there's nothing there's no reason for Nineveh to be saved they were oppressors of people they were evil and they worshiped other gods and but God decided he was going to act and then he acted through Jonah. Nineveh isn't saved until a prophet comes and Jonah acts and God draws the whole city of Nineveh to himself through Jonah. And then you have the prophets as his people, Israel, wander away from him. And they go after other gods and they, you know, despise the sacrifices and all the things you read about in the major and minor prophets. And God sends the prophets, and the prophets are obedient, and God draws to himself his people. He keeps drawing them back to himself. And then Jesus, Jesus gives us the gospel of the cross. And he taught us to be fishers of men. And he gives us this example of the net. Jesus is going to give us the gospel. That's one of the things he accomplishes on the cross, is that he gives us the gospel. 
his death and resurrection and all that he accomplished. Jesus gives us that, but he also teaches us that we're going to be the fishers, that the drawing of God is not just this, oh, God's going to, you know, the fish are going to jump into the boat. I mean, God could do that if he wanted. Jesus could have the fish jump into the boat uh, all by themselves, and he could draw people to himself that way. But that's not how God planned to do it. God's plan, his mission... His vision for how the gospel is going to go forth in the world is that we're going to put our nets down into the water and he's going to draw the fish into the nets and then we're going to pull them in. We're going to be fishers of men. And so when people ask that question and you start to think, well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, if, if, if God's initiative is that he is going to, um, you know, a simplistic argument that if God's sovereign and if Jesus has accomplished everything on the cross and he's going to draw all his sheep to himself, then why evangelize? Why do missions? Why did Jesus even send out disciples? Why did Paul and tens of thousands more lay down their lives to speak the gospel? Because, you know, if God is sovereign and he's doing this drawing, as we've talked about, then why, why even evangelize? And, and the answer to that is just what Jesus is illustrating here in this text. It's the how the drawing happens. We put our nets into the water. We evangelize. We tell people about the gospel. We tell people about Jesus. We tell people about what Jesus did in our lives and introduce them to God because that is how God is drawing people to himself. He's chosen that his disciples need to put their nets into the water and then that's how the drawing happens. And so that's why we do it. And then you see going forward, like Paul who went and you know, preach the gospel in all those different cities. And then as you get away from Paul, you have to start to think a little harder and realize that this gospel message was going out through all these sort of relatively less known and unnamed people. I mean, Luke. I love Luke. The reason I love Luke is because, um, well, I mean, I love Luke, but Luke in the Bible. I love you too, Luke. Uh, <laughs> but the reason I love Luke is that he is, as a writer in the Bible, he's a Gentile. He's one of us. So I like have a special place in my heart for Luke because he's just this doctor who is a Gentile who just happened to hear the gospel just like anybody else. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't called by Jesus like Paul. Luke was just a Gentile and he heard the gospel and he got converted and he's like the, the Christian witness of, that we have in the Bible. So I love Luke for that reason. But then you go further and you have Apollos and you hear about Apollos and Apollos came to the faith and Apollos was you know preaching the gospel in different cities and people came to the faith through Apollos. And then you hear about Lydia, and you hear about Tyrannus, and you hear about all these different people in the Bible, and then all the people that you don't even know their names. All all these churches that Paul planted, and the gospel went forth by people giving their testimony, by people telling people about the gospel, about who God is. There's a human agency in the plan of God. The, the human, the people, the plan of God for his mission for the world includes us. We have to let down the net. Because the gospel is God's method of drawing people to himself. Jesus on the cross is the gospel. And the gospel proclaimed is how Luke and Apollos and Lydia and Cornelius and Onesimus. And eventually you keep going down through, you know, down through history. And, you know, the early church fathers. And, you know, then, you know, sort of the historical people that you hear about. And the church was growing and going into different countries and all those. It keeps coming down, keeps coming down, keeps coming down, keeps coming down, keeps coming down. It comes to us. How did God draw us to himself? Somebody told us the gospel. Might have been our parents. Might have been a friend. Might have been somebody at school. Might have been a co-worker at work. But at some point, we were caught in God's net by the gospel. 
Somebody told us the gospel, and God drew us to him through the gospel being told by somebody else. And so now our job is to tell the gospel so that other people hear it and are drawn in, because this is God's method of drawing people to himself. It's true that God is the actor. God is sovereign. God is acting. God is pursuing. His spirit is in the world. He is softening hearts. He's changing people's lives. But the action of it, the human agency of it, is the gospel spoken through believers, through you and I. The gospel doesn't get to people until a believer is brave enough and obedient enough to speak it. Just like in this video, right? How is, is Bill, right? How is Bill a believer? Because somebody shared the gospel with him. What was it? 1998 to 2004. Took six years, right? Six years of this woman patiently teaching him the gospel, teaching him about God, teaching him about Jesus, teaching him about his sin. And so the, the drawing that happens, the dr- great drawing of people into the church and into a relationship with God and into a sense of repentance happens when believers are brave enough and obedient enough to speak the gospel. Jesus made the way for us to do it. Jesus draws people to God, but it's through the testimony of his people. It's through the church. Now, point two, and I have a video for this one as well. Just watch another video of this happening. How do people react to the gospel? There's one woman that I've been sharing the gospel with for a long time, over 25 years. Let's call her Mary. The way I started studying the Bible with Mary is awesome because it was such a God thing. We were just having a conversation over the death of someone, and we found something that was a very clear gospel presentation, and I read it, and we started having a dialogue back and forth, and she was asking questions, and I found the Lord giving such boldness and courage to me, and we had a wonderful conversation, and it came to the point where she actually said, maybe we could study the Bible together. What has become apparent in studying the gospel is that it's a different gospel, and so we're believing differently, and she's uncomfortable with that. Her gospel is following the way of Jesus with his values and being willing to suffer to love other people, but it's very man-centered, not believing that Jesus was God's son and that he gave his life to rescue us from sin. She is thinking that Jesus is not the only way that sinners can be redeemed. She doesn't like to think that there's only one way to do anything, and she views that as as being divisive, and anything that divides and keeps her from being able to embrace everybody is viewed as an evil. And what I keep trying to emphasize is God has loved the world, and he has invited all to come and put their hope in Christ. But he's made this one way.
I've been tempted to quit my evangelism with her and and to give up. But every time I think about what the Lord has done in my life, it encourages me to press on in prayer, to persevere. Because I want her to be rescued. I want her to know the love of God in Christ. And I don't want her to stand on her merit when she meets the Lord. Sometimes I have doubted that I'm sharing it in a way that is helpful, but I also have been encouraged and comforted by God's Word that says the natural man doesn't understand the things of God and because they're spiritually discerned. So I understand that even communicating clearly to her apart from God's work in her life, um, won't bear fruit. So I've taken courage that that um, I can keep praying for her and keep persevering. And I keep praying the Lord will give her eyes to see. My name is Eli, and I am unashamed of the gospel. So in this example with Eli here, the chair is empty still, that we can be part of God's human agency in drawing people to himself, but not everybody reacts to the gospel the same way. And that we, as fishers of men, have to understand that and be faithful as Eli is to continue to share the gospel and continue to invite people and allow God to work, even though they don't all react the same way. And my text here, I just want to spend a little bit of time on this and how people react and how we can participate in, uh, in, in that dialogue that we've seen Eli is engaged in and, and, and how we can help people react or, or have an opportunity to be provoked to respond to the gospel. And so my examples are from the book of Acts, Largely, in Acts 16, we see Paul going to Philippi, and, and he meets Lydia by the river, and uh, he, uh, she, he presents the gospel, and Lydia responds, and then there's a demon-possessed girl who's prophesying and actually bugging him most of the time, and eventually he, you know, he speaks to her, and she comes to faith, and then he's put in jail over it, and then you know the jailer, uh, you remember that in Philippi, there's an earthquake, and the jail's open, and the jailer's going to kill himself because he's afraid he's let them escape, and he explains who Jesus is to the jailer, and the jailer and his family come to know the Lord, and they form the basis of the church, but that's not the main point, is that that little group of people, Lydia, this you know, woman, uh, and this demon-possessed girl, and this jailer, basically form the church in Philippi and eventually, you know, becomes one of the foundational churches of Asia from this group of people who then tell the gospel to others. And then in Acts 17, in Thessalonica, Paul is reasoning with them in Acts 17, 1 to 5. If you wanted to follow along there, I'm just going to read there, Acts 17, 1 to 5, and talking about Paul and his methodology and, and seeing how people react to Paul. It says, after they had traveled through <coughs> Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and where there was a Jewish synagogue. And Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue, as he customarily did, and on three Sabbath days he addressed them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead. 
Okay, that's important, that Paul is explaining the gospel. That's what Eli was talking about, right? He, you have to tell the true gospel to understand whether people have the same gospel you do. And when Paul is preaching here, he's not just preaching all the sort of things around the gospel. He's preaching that Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large group of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Yay, amen, gospel works. But the Jews became jealous, and gathering together some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and they attacked Jason's house, trying to find Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly. And so some people accepted, some people were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and other people, you know, formed a mob and a riot. You know, I, I wish when I preached there'd be a mob and a riot. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? You preach the gospel, you know, and there's like a mob going down Main Street in Halliburton, you know, because they're so angry about the reality uh, of, of, of the gospel being presented and, and uh, they just, they can't, they're, they can't, they're confronted with it. They're provoked by it. Or if you keep going in Acts 19, 8 to 10, <clears throat> at Ephesus, Paul is witnessing at the temple, and eventually he, he moves, and for two years he's in the house of Tyrannus, and for two years he is provoking them and reasoning with them and, and, and sharing the gospel with them for two years at Ephesus to see that church planted. And so people are going to react differently to the gospel. And so the encouragement here is just from Paul or from this testimony here is that sometimes that chair is empty. I don't know who's in your empty chair, you know, Mary, I think was the name there. I don't know who's in your empty chair, but you have to be faithful to continue to present the gospel, you know, because people are going to react differently to it. But our job is not people's reaction. Our job is just to keep fishing, just keep presenting the gospel, keep lifting the reality that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead for our sins and draw people to repentance. And so it's a dialogue over time. It takes time for this to happen. I mean... It would be great if, um, you know, the first time you presented the gospel, people responded to it. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't even happen all the time for Paul. It takes years sometime because people are at different places and they react differently to the gospel depending on where they're at. And so my encouragement is just that we continue this dialogue. Continue it with your friends. Continue it with your family. Continue it with, you know, your coworkers, And make sure that the gospel is at the heart of it. That's the key from that text there is that Paul had to reason with them that Christ had to die. The full gospel has to be central to the message. You know, some accepted and some rioted. But why does it work for some people and not for others? Why do some people come to faith through Paul and then countless of other people come to faith through the unnamed and unheralded anonymous believers who followed after Paul? I mean, Paul didn't convert everybody in Philippi. He didn't convert everybody in Thessalonica. He didn't convert everybody in Ephesus. He didn't convert everybody in in Corinth. Those churches largely grew by the gospel from the church believers who followed after Paul. And the reason is, is that God has us all in different places. Relationships that other people don't have. Credibility that others don't have. You're engaged with people in environments that others are not. So some people think, okay, well, you know, the evangelist or, or the pastor, maybe it's Paul's job to, to share the gospel. It's the pastor's job to do that. But you have the relationships that I don't have. 
You know, you have the relationships that maybe some of the other evangelists in the congregation don't have. God's put you in your family. God's put you in your workplace. God's brought you alongside people at certain times of trouble in their life for you to have a relationship and a credibility and a witness to them that others don't have. So when you're looking around wondering who is going to share the gospel with this person, you're the one that's standing there. It's you. God has put you there. And so people react to the gospel based on where they're at in their life, the credibility that you have with them, the relationship that you have, your ability to speak and be transparent with them. And the key ingredients is your presence and your patience. Right? These two testimonies, and there's a bunch of other testimonies. I'll, I'll put the link to the rest of the testimonies. Uh, there's about 10 of them, I think. And uh, I'll put the link on Facebook and on the webpage so you can go and look at the other ones. But the, the key ingredient to all of these testimonies is the presence and the patience of the people. The fact that they were there walking through life with them and that they were patiently explaining how God is working in their life and explaining the gospel. And so there's different kinds of people that you need to move along. And now we have the time, so I'm going to do it. So how would you uh, approach different kinds of people? Um, There are people at at the different places that they're at. and, And one way to provoke and to engage is to continually be asking them questions to to keep them in a place of wondering and, and provoked or under, you know, understanding why it is they believe or don't believe what they believe. And so there's four different kinds of approaches that I'll touch on, and I get these from Questioning Evangelism, which is a great book. It's a resource which I'll mention at the end. But there's people who just don't think clearly. So you probably have some of these people in your life. They just don't think clearly, and they say things like, it doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. Right? It doesn't, doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. So how do you approach someone like that? What are some questions you could ask to move them along in the gospel? And you could simply ask, you know, do you really believe that? Like, really? Tell me about that. And, and just by engaging them in that conversation and sort of provoking them to think about, does it really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? And just ask them. How, explain that to me. How does that work? And, and provoke them. And they might get upset. They might get angry at you. But it causes them to think about their faith. And this is drawing them into the net. This is, gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to draw. Or there's people, maybe farther along the scale, or in a different part, a different place, believing that everything is true. So they would say something like, all religions are basically the same. And so at that point, you could launch into a lesson on comparative religion. Or you could ask, can you explain that to me? Right? When you say that all religions are basically the same, you can just ask, explain that to me. Explain how they're all the same. Right? And get them to question what it is they actually just easily believe or take on faith. Right? Tell me how that makes sense that all religions are basically the same. At that point, they don't need arguments. At that point, they just need someone walking alongside them, drawing them into the net, drawing them into, gently provoking them, but drawing them into questions about their faith. Now, some people, when they react, and this is the people who started the riot, some people are just not sincere. So when you're out there and and you're talking about the gospel and you're sharing the gospel with people, they could be your really good friends. Some people are not sincere. They're attacking you and they're being sarcastic or they're just being foolish and they're not really looking for an answer. And so answering them doesn't help. And so we have to dislodge them from their attack or we have to dislodge them from their foolishness by engaging them in a dialogue and moving them away. And so they might say something very provocative and they might say something very attacking and they might say something like, are you saying that everyone who disagrees with you is going to hell? 
And so right there, you can get your back up and you can get defensive and you can start your arguments about hell. But you could just ask, do you believe in hell? And see what they say, right? Do you, maybe they say yes, maybe they say no. Depending on what they say, you could say, you know, do you think anybody is in hell? What do you think is the purpose of heaven and hell? Who should be in hell? You know, who shouldn't be in hell? Who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Who should decide, right? These are provocative questions that get people engaged in talking about the gospel and getting people moving towards a conversation about God and who Jesus is and what salvation is. You have to get people uncomfortable with their unbelief. And the reality is these conversations are uncomfortable for us. There is no such thing as comfortable evangelism. Okay, that's like an oxymoron, even for evangelists. And this is where, you know, most people are at. You know, you hear those sort of super evangelists that you talk about and they say things like, oh, you know, I just can't go to sleep at night or, I, you know, I just don't feel like my day is complete unless I've witnessed to at least one person and, you know, told them about Jesus. And you just think, oh, wow, that is not me. You know, I'm thinking if I can get through a day without talking about Jesus, that's a good day. <laughs> and so, you know, we have to just sort of embrace the fact that, that, that evangelism is uncomfortable. But that is God's purpose. God's purpose in drawing people to himself is through his people engaged in these faith dialogues, engaged in these provocative dialogues. And people are going to react differently. And this whole middle section, number two, is just we have to get comfortable with the fact that people are going to react differently to the gospel. We're going to share the gospel with family and friends, and they're going to come along with us, and they're going to want to do a Bible study, and and the end result is going to be fantastic. And then we're going to share the gospel and it's going to be frustrating for years and we're not going to get anywhere and that chair is going to remain empty and maybe we'll get attacked and, and maybe they'll make fun of us or, or who knows, but we have to be provocative and engage them. And all of this is just to say that people are on a scale. You know, Jesus gave us uh, the parable of the soils and the sower, right? And we have to understand that we have to sometimes pick rocks in the soil before we can cultivate the soil before we can plant the soil or weed the soil, you know, before there's a harvest. And so just sort of giving you some practical things to help you understand, as we're engaged in the gospel, we have to understand where people are at on that scale. You know, are they, you know, rocky ground, hard-hearted, you know, stones, and we just have to work on picking stones? Or are they starting to become soft? Is their heart starting to become moving towards interest in things that are spiritual and things of faith and so we just need to cultivate that soil or are they at the point where they are ready to hear the gospel and to repent and to understand that god is calling them and that they need to change their lives and so we need to understand that people are on this scale and we can ask them you know the people who are on stony ground you can just start out by asking things like do you you even think about spiritual things or what's your faith background did you used to go to church as a kid you know or maybe, you know, they're frustrated and they're pessimistic and they're, you know, they, they just are cynical, you know, hardened people. And you can ask, do you think people can change? Like, is it possible for people to change? You know? Or isn't it possible that your questions could be answered? You know, somebody who has a lot of questions about, I don't know what God is, and I don't know about this, and I don't know why evil in the world, and I don't, I don't understand this. You can just ask a question like, isn't it possible that your questions could be answered? Isn't it possible that there are answers? I mean, that's a starting point. That's just like a, a seed in the ground that can germinate, you know, to just begin these conversations with people, you know, or asking, how do you know what you know? You just have to get them off balance sometime, 
You know, God superintends this process. It's God who's doing the drawing. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to ultimately soften their heart. It's ultimately God who saves. We are just the fishermen who are casting out the nets. And these are ways we can cast out the nets and ways that we can respond to how people respond to the gospel or respond to these conversations. God was patient with us as we had our questions and we wrestled and we rebelled and we turned against God and then we came back to God and people were there patiently with us, presenting the gospel to us, patiently inviting us to church. God was patient with us. We need to be patient with others and we need to keep casting the net. As we're faithful, God will draw those that are ready to hear. But don't give up based on people's response. Just keep provoking, keep asking, keep being there for people so that they can be drawn by God. Thirdly, why do we do it? Other than the fact that it's a command, God tells us, Jesus gives us the example of the net and the fish, and he says, I'm going to do the drawing, but I'm telling you to put the net in, and then I'll bring people the fish into the net, and you haul them in. So God tells us to do it, and he, he gives us the great commission to go into the world, um, baptizing people and teaching them all that God had taught them. So we have the command to go and do this, but you know, it doesn't, it's not just a burden. This is key. First John 1, 1 to 4. If you turn to 1 John 1 to 4, we see the, this is later on in the apostle or the disciple John's life. This is near the end of his life. He's been a faithful disciple for probably going on, oh man, could be 60 years at this point, maybe 70 years. Um, estimates are that he's in his 90s when he writes this. And so John, at the end of his life, is expounding on and explaining this life that he had as a disciple. And he says, this is what we proclaim to you, writing to his Christian friends. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you. Okay, this is the gospel pretty Plainly, John is talking about the testimony of the gospel. We've seen it, we've heard it, we're testifying of it. What we've seen and heard we announce to you so that you may have fellowship with us, so that you can repent and be saved. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 4. This is what he says. Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is why he's doing it. After all this, all the stuff that the disciples went through, all the the imprisonment that Paul went through, the stoning that Stephen suffered, the boiling in oil, the, you know, banishment to Patmos that John went through, the, uh, all the stuff that the disciples went through in order to testify of the Lord Jesus and to bear witness and to share the gospel as often as they could with as many as they could. He says in verse 4, thus we're writing these things, or you could say, thus we did all these things so that our joy may be complete. John says he testifies, he bears witness to the gospel so that his joy will be made complete as people respond. Now what I want you to do here, as we're nearing the end here, I just want you to think about this for yourself. Who have you been praying for? Because I know you are. Who do you have in your family that you're praying for? Who, what co-workers or what friends are far from God and you've been praying for them for a long time and maybe sharing the gospel with for a long time? You know, an old friend or might even be a husband or a wife. Now, think about this. Wouldn't your joy be complete if God drew them? Like, what what could be... 
What could be the most joyful thing that could happen to you this week? Other than God drawing that person that you're thinking of right now. You think of people who are lost in your family. You think of maybe a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or an old school friend or a co-worker and they're lost. They are far from God and they're rebelling and they want nothing to do with God. What could bring you more joy this week than seeing God draw them? And then seeing them come to Christ. That's what, that's what, that's what John's talking about. Because I think what's, I know what's going on in your heart. That would be the most joyful thing. Would we not be overjoyed to see those people that we pray for and that we witness to come to Christ? Oh, I, just, I, I wish that God would do a work in my heart that that would every day just be building, building, building in me the pursuit of joy in people coming to Christ. You know, because I, I admit, I confess, I... Not as joyful about that as I should be. And I doubt sometimes that it'll ever happen. People I've been praying for and, and people that are far from God, I think, I don't even know, you know, can God draw them? I know he can, but I, I just confess that I have to focus on this cha- verse 4. I have to realize that our joy is complete. There is nothing more joyful for us as Christians than participating in God on this plan. That God's vision for mission involves us and that his mission that involves us includes our joy. Because, man, if the people we were praying for, if the people that we desired to see come to God, if they were to come to God this week, it would be the most joyful week. And then the same thing next week or next month and next week and next month. As people came to God, there would be so much joy. And so we need to think about that for ourselves. And we have to think about our participation. As God draws people, it would be the most joyful thing. And so then I leave us with this then. How will they be drawn if they don't hear the gospel? How will they know if they don't hear? How will our joy made be complete if we don't speak the gospel to them? It is great to pray. That's the place to start. But eventually you've got to speak the gospel to them. Or they can't be drawn. And our joy won't be complete unless we speak the gospel. So Eli in this video, you know, she's felt like giving up. You know, but Eli is going to keep speaking the gospel to her friend. We all have empty chairs like hers. And we all have friends and family members that it would be our joy to see drawn to God. And the drawing is by the gospel, and the gospel is spoken by us. That is God's plan for the gospel, is that we would speak it, that there is a human agency that we participate. And so our challenge at the beginning of Missions Week is, yes, global missions, yes, missionaries, yes, people who have had it put on their heart to go and reach lost people in unreached people groups, and there'll be a sermon on that next week. But this Sunday, what I wanted to start with was us and our mission and our people and the unreached people in our circles that need to hear the gospel. And we need to join God in his mission of drawing the world to himself. And it all happens one fish at a time, getting drawn into the net. Let's pray. Father God, just give you thanks for your word. I thank you for the example that Jesus gave us in the nets and the fish. I thank you for the missionary zeal of the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the joy that's evident in the life of John and the other apostles, that their joy is complete when people come to know you. Father, Oh, break our hearts to give us that joy. That's where we have to start. I would start with a prayer for us and a prayer for everyone out there and that we would pray this week that we would seek our joy in people coming to know you and the success of your gospel. That our joy would be complete in our participation in your mission. 
Father, forgive us when that has been the last thing on our mind. And this week, and as Elder Graham said, every week to come, not just this week, but all the weeks coming, keep us focused on your mission, which is drawing people to yourself, that they can worship you and find their joy and be made complete in you as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.